Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is easily found, and we are looking at the third chapter there. We'll be looking at the the first ten verses of Exodus chapter 3 this morning. But as you open up your Bibles and find, page your way to Exodus chapter 3, I am reminded as I was reading about this text of an experiment that one of my sons, my oldest son and I, had to do. He was assigned, as I'm sure many of you were assigned, science projects as you were going through junior high and high school. One of my boys was uh, assigned a science project. In fact, at the time, his entire school was, all all the children in his school were required to to do some science project for this school, for for a science fair. And they gave dozens and dozens of options for what the science project could be. They gave some suggestions. And we chose, uh, for him and I, we chose to do one that would be applicable to our family and to other families. It was the, the, the aim of our science project, his science project, which when they're young, you know how it becomes our science project, not just their science project. Our science project together, it was to determine which kinds of wood were best to heat your home with in the wintertime. We have a wood stove. We are often, not often, we always are using wood to heat our home, wood that often we split and cut ourselves. And so what we did for this project is we went online, we found a distributor who would Uh, sell kind of rods of various types of wood. They had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of wood for sale, more kinds of wood than I knew existed. And uh, they were about, you could buy them two inches by, each rod was about two inches by two inches and about 12 inches long. And so we got uh, 10 or 12 different types of wood and we got three, diff- three, uh, three rods of each kind of wood. And we set up a test in our home in our wood stove. We got a fire going. We had kind of a rack uh, that we had set up. And on, you know, as we got the fire going, we put three different kinds of wood on the rack. And as the fire was burning the wood, we, we timed how long it took for each piece of wood to break down the middle, to break down and to burn up. And once it broke, that was kind of our, all right, this piece of wood lasted this long. This kind of wood lasted this long. And we averaged it out and it was very scientific. It could be repeatable. It was, you know, we submitted it into some scientific journals and we're still waiting for publication. (laughs) But in that process, we were determining what, what kind of wood would burn up the quickest, which kind of wood would burn the slowest. And, and as someone who burns wood to heat their home, you are looking for the, the wood that gives off the most heat for the longest period of time. So that you're not constantly throwing wood into the fire. It means you, lose, you use less wood over the course of a winter And when it's really cold and you're throwing wood in the fire before you go to bed at night, you're not getting up at 2 and 3 in the morning because the house is too cold and the fire's gone out. You want big pieces of wood. You want wood that's going to take a long time to burn. And so we ran this experiment. And it's going to not shock you at all to know that all of those pieces of wood burned up. In fact, 
It is a basic assumption. We did not even put it in our scientific report that all the pieces of wood did eventually burn up. All of them were consumed by the fire. Not a single one of them made it through. In fact, had we found a piece of wood, a kind of wood that was able to be lit on fire but not be consumed by fire, that would have been notable. Because that kind of wood does not exist. That kind of thing does not happen. Except in the text that we are going to look at today. The text that we are going to look at today records for us a time, in the, the only time in the history of the world that a piece of wood was on fire and didn't burn up. That a piece of wood was on fire and was not touched by it. We find that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Follow along or listen as I read these verses. Now Moses, you remember Moses, he was introduced to us last week. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, far, far from home, to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, this mountain that is here called Horeb Mountains, and they were given various names, and this mountain is going to go by another prominent name in Scripture, Mount Sinai. He comes across this mountain. It's of no consequence to him. He only later will recognize it as the mountain of God as he describes it here. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. The fire is in the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then the Lord said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father. That is the God of Moses' father, Amram the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Do you hear those same words that we saw last week? God hears, he sees, he knows. Here again, God is acknowledging that. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Would you join me in prayer as we come to the study of God's word? 
Father, you are, you are, your word tells us, a consuming fire. And yet we are presented with the irony in this text that you who are a consuming fire in your holiness, you do not consume this bush. And we pray today that you would help us to understand the significance of this event. More than this, that we would help that you would help us to see you in your holiness. That we ourselves may be moved to the mission that you have sent us. That we may be moved to joy in you. That we may be moved to humility. That we may be moved to thankfulness in Christ Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. What we find in our text this morning is this unburning bush, this non-consuming fire. And we, told, we, we read in these first few verses that the Lord appears to Moses in this burning bush. And the burning bush, on one level, it is aimed to get Moses' attention. Moses is probably like every other man who is fascinated by fire. And uh, I am sure that the fire caught his attention as he was walking through. It caught his attention. But the fire itself is not ultimately what drew Moses in, is it? It's not the fact that he saw a bush on fire. What caught his attention was that the fire was in the bush, but it did not consume it. It did not burn it. Like, the three friends of Daniel who were thrown into that fiery furnace but come out untouched so this bush, this living bush with all of its leaves is alive, is present, is unburned, is unwithered, unscorched, unsinged. And that is what gets Moses' attention. This bush on fire grabs the attention of Moses. It is a non-consuming fire, a a burning bush that is not burning. But the burning bush is more than just a signal flare to get Moses' attention. It is a signal flare of the very presence of God. We see all the way through, often in the Old Testament, that fire becomes a symbol of God's presence. We see this, we saw this back earlier as we were reading through Genesis chapter 15. God shows his presence to Abraham in that torch and smoke that passes between the the animals. And Abraham sees the significance of that fire. It is a symbol of God's presence there with with him. Moreover, the the image of fire and smoke is going to get repeated again and again. We see it later in the book of Exodus, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Moreover, when God appears to his people in Exodus chapter 19, what does he appear as? He comes down on Mount Sinai, and what is, what is happening? It is as if the mountain of Sinai itself, the very top of it, is burning and on fire. Fire begins to be this symbol of the very presence of God. And here, and in verse 2, we find that it is the angel of the Lord that appears to Moses in this flame of fire, and it begs the question, who is, what is this angel of the Lord? Some 
Christians, some commentators, think that this angel of the Lord is merely an angel that represents the Lord. I think it, I do not think that that interpretation goes far enough. For often throughout the Old Testament, what we find is that this angel of the Lord, which is distinct from the Lord, yet is also one with the Lord. In Malachi 3.1, we find that the coming of the angel of the Lord is a coming of the Lord himself. Moreover, in Exodus chapter 23, God tells us, he tells the people of Israel, that all of his nature, all of his character, all of his being is found in this angel of the Lord who is going to guide them. And while other angels will carry messages for God, this angel of the Lord, when he speaks, he speaks as God. While other angels are, they, they, while other angels, when they come to human beings and beings fall, we as people, we fall down before them in awe of them. They refuse to receive that worship. But this angel of the Lord, it is viewed that he, it is right to worship him. What we come to see is that this angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Indeed, you, you see this in this text when the angel of the Lord declares to us, I am the God of your father, that is Moses' father, Amram, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This angel of the Lord is not some merely great angel. It is the Lord coming to visit him. Here we have the presence of God in the bush. And yet, the burning bush is more than just a signal of the presence of God. It is a signal of the character of God. We're going to see this again next week. But what we see here is that the fire that is in the bush, it does not consume the bush. It is a picture of God's holiness. It is... This, this fire is pure fire. It is not feeding on the bush. It is not depriving the bush of this energy and turning it into something else. It is pure energy, pure light, pure heat, pure fire. No ash, nothing else mixed in. It is an image, it is a picture of God who is holy. And just as the faith... Just as the flame is all light and no darkness, so we read in the book of James that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And just as Moses cannot draw too close to God, so Paul tells Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. And because God is holy, Moses receives this warning to not come any closer. Moses is told to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. This act of taking off his sandals is a, was a culturally, a culturally significant way to show respect and reverence for the one in whose presence you were. And Moses is in the presence of a holy God. And if he is walking on holy ground, how much more holy is the one who is present there. And this begs the question, what does it mean for God to be holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? Certainly it carries this, this idea that God is, he is set apart. 
And he is set apart from everything that is impure, all that is unholy, all that is wrong and wicked. That there is nothing in God that rejoices in wrongdoing. There is nothing in God that receives wrongdoing, that accepts it. God is perfect and good and just and righteous. He is pure. But there is something even more fundamental in God's holiness than him being set apart from anything that is, that is sinful or wrong. If all that we think of when we think of God's holiness is that he is not wrong, that he is not sin, and that sin cannot dwell with him, then it, it becomes difficult for us to conceive of how God can be holy when he alone existed before he had created anything. Before sin existed, if God's holiness can only be defined in the negative, that is, God's holiness is his being separate from sin, then how could he be holy before sin existed? At the very root, God's holiness is more than his separation from all that is not holy, all that is sin, all that is wicked, all that is base. God's holiness at the very root is that he is devoted. He is devoted to that which is all good, all pure, all just, all righteous, all lovely. He is devoted to that which is all holy. And he who was perfect in love, in purity, in justice, in mercy, in goodness, in holiness, his devotion is ultimately to himself. He is the Holy One. For him to be devoted, for him to be holy, toward anything else, for him to be oriented toward you or to me or to anything else would be to make him unholy. The burning bush is a signal of God's holiness, is also a signal that it is dangerous for us, for you and for me. As broken, sinful, fallen creatures to come into the presence of God. Moses is warned, warned, do not come any closer. Stay back. And Moses himself, when he realizes that God is in the bush, his response is what? To hide his face. He is afraid, we are told. Brothers and sisters, what we read in this text and is borne out throughout the pages of the Bible is that God is not safe for sinners. He is not safe for people like us who have done evil, who have broken his laws. We have lived how we wanted to live. We have made choices that we think are best for us. We have often lived as if God does not exist or as he weighs lightly on our minds. We are selfish, self-centered creatures. And God is not safe for us. We see this first in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. And do you remember what it is that protects the Garden of Eden from Adam and Eve and humanity ever gaining entrance back into the presence of God? It is an angel there with a the flaming sword, isn't it? Later in Exodus chapter 19, when Israel is at the base of the mountain and God is there, and all of, they are warned that if any creature, if any human touches the mountain of God, they will what? They will die. They will be killed instantly. And we read that they are terrified. And they tell Moses, you go up, you talk to God, we are too afraid, we do not want him to speak to us. 
And that is the right response. In Exodus 33, again, we find that God is dangerous for Moses to see. Earlier we read Isaiah chapter 6. And there we read when Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy. Do you know what Isaiah doesn't do from that point on? He, he doesn't sit down and, and, and just say, hey, do you, I want to write a book now about you know, my 20 minutes in the presence of God. Everyone needs to know of everything that I've seen and how great, great I am because I got to be and experience God firsthand. His response is what? Woe is me, for I am a man undone. God is not safe. He is not safe. Isaiah 33, 14. We read that the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? And the answer, he who walks up righteously. Hebrews 12, 29, we are told that our God is a consuming fire. And the irony here is that the God who is a consuming fire does not consume the bush. Friends, God is not safe. Moses is rightfully afraid in the presence of God. Because the God who burns bright with holiness cannot be safely approached by we who are not holy. A holy God requires holiness in the ones who come near to him. Which begs the question, what does it mean for you and I to be holy? If God's command throughout the Old Testament and apply in the New Testament is, you be holy as I am holy, what does it mean for you and I to be holy? Some Christians have looked at this view, this this idea of holiness, and they have reduced it down, simplified it to merely a, a set of expectations, external expectations. When I was growing up, it was very much similar. It was very similar to, you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't hang with people who do. You, don't, you, know, you, you, you may not play with playing cards, you may not go see a movie. It, it, what kind of hairstyle you have, what kind of dress you know, are you wearing, all these things that, that, that are almost arbitrary rules that we come up with to determine what is holy, what is not holy. is if you fit this outward model of holiness, of of external self-discipline, you must therefore be a holy person. But that just doesn't fit up well with, with what we see in the world. There are people who live extraordinarily disciplined lives who have nothing and want nothing to do with God. One excellent example of this is two men who were living around the same time, one Jonathan Edwards, the other George Washington. Their lives overlapped by many years. Jonathan Edwards was a young man born early in the 18th century, that is the 1700s. And as a very young man, he, he writes his resolutions. And his resolutions for how he wants to live his life are filled with, with a desire to please God in everything Listen to how he records his desire to live for the Lord in his very first resolution. He says, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. 
duration in this world without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. He was in his teenage years and he's still using words like hence. You know, that's a different time period. That view of God pulsed within him. His desire to know God, to please God. And though his resolutions covered all areas of life, how he was going to interact with people, to what, how he would dress, all, all these things, it filled up every area. But it centered in on who God was in his desire to devote himself to him. Compare this with George Washington, who himself as a young man came up, we can still find them today, 110 rules for civility, and good discipline. 110 rules he came up for how he was going to live his life. And he was known during his days as an incredibly disciplined man. But God has only mentioned once in all of those 110 rules. He's mentioned in the 108th. And there it's simply, whenever you speak of God or religion, speak with reverence. I think if you held up both of these men side by side, their lives would look very similar, both very disciplined, both good men. But by all accounts, if if all we had of these men were these two sets of one rules, the other resolutions, if all that we have, and it's not, we would say one is holy and one is not. One has God at the center of his life, and one, God is on the margins. Holiness is not merely an external list that we can somehow meet. In our day, the reality is holiness has been tossed aside like unwelcome cold water in a shower. Most Christians today would want nothing to do with any, any hint of holiness. The, the call for our holiness has been replaced with something thinner, something cheaper, something much more shallow, something easier. We replaced the emphasis and knowledge of God as holy with God who is cool. He is relevant. He's easygoing. He's approachable. He's generally interested in the same things you and I are. We want a God who gets us. A God who is cool with you just the way you are. And you can bet that he's not going to judge you or anyone else. That's, that's the message of much of Christianity. But Moses, he, he's afraid to come into the presence of God. God calls him to come and he's terrified. And we, we can't fathom that in our day. Why would anybody be terrified of God? God is not terrifying. He's nice. We treat approaching God like we treat visiting a a, a relative in the nursing home, like our grandmothers. She's just glad that we were able to take the time to see her. She's just glad that we were showing up. It doesn't matter what's happened, and she can't wait till we can take some more time out of our busy lives to come again. 
In short, we have lost the call to be holy. We have fumbled it away, and it has impoverished us entirely. What it means for you and I to be holy is that in all of our lives, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our actions, our words, our decisions, our conduct, our attitudes, our jokes, our entertainment, our music, our projects, our clothing, the the cars we drive, the way we drive, the haircut we get, the haircut we get, the works we do, all of it, our whole lives be lived in devotion to God. This, this, this definition of holiness is on one level far simpler, but far more impossible, isn't it? Be holy, for I am holy. The only ones who come into the presence of God are those who are holy. And you and I, we cannot safely approach him because we are not. Now you know why Moses covers cowers at the burning bush. It's not because of the heat. It's not because of the brightness of the flame. It is because God is there and God is holy. And that holiness threatens to destroy him. In the same way that God's holiness threatens to destroy you and me. Because we are sinners. But this text, which at the very heart has this irony in it. That the God who is a consuming fire, as a fire, does not consume the bush leads us to two other ironies. And the first is this. The holy God who cannot accept sinners, cannot receive sinners, this holy God who cannot receive sinners, he invites sinners to come. That's what we see in the text. In verse 1, we read about Moses. He's tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. You remember what brings him to this point in his life? Moses was raised there in Egypt. He was was raised and educated in, in the palace of Egypt. He was accorded all the dignity, all the wealth of the world. And it appears that as he, as he had rightfully identified with the people of Israel, one day he goes out, he sees one of the people of Israel being attacked, and in anger and pride, he believes that he can bring about the salvation. And there is no, not a hint throughout Moses' life in any way that he thinks of or cares about God. One wit. And he fails in that project to rescue the people of Israel. He's refused. He is rejected, not only by Egypt, but by the people of Israel themselves. And as a fugitive, he runs into the wilderness to escape the Egyptian justice. And for 40 years, he lives as a peasant, working as a shepherd, the lowest form of work available for his father-in-law. His father-in-law, who is a Midianite, he marries a woman of a nation that he is not supposed to have married. A, A people who will oppose the people of God with vigor. He marries into this family, and not just a Midianite, but a man who is himself a pagan priest. And even now, not, not working for himself. He's a shepherd for his father-in-law, wandering off. He's not looking for God, not seeking for God, not wanting God. 
But God finds him. He, fi- he, call- he, he finds him. He gets his attention. And he calls him. And do you notice how he calls him? We see this in verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Why does God use his name twice? Is it because Moses is hard of hearing? You know? It's what my excuse often is. My wife has to call me multiple times. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Kendall, Kendall! Moses distracted, staring at his iPhone, not paying attention. Like the kids out doing their own thing. Hey, did you hear me? I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. It's not what's going on. Throughout the Bible, we find this double use of someone's name. When God calls Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel, Samuel. When Christ calls Saul in Acts, Saul, Saul. And Christ says that all those who say, Lord, Lord, they will not be with him in heaven. Not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord. What is, what is going on there? This double use of someone's name it was a term of endearment. It was a term of affection. It was a term of love. I want you to understand the irony here. Here is God who is holy, who is pure, and he who is holy cannot receive sinners. And yet God who is holy invites sinners to come. And it is not a condescending, condescending pitiful or, or despising call. It is a call of affection, a call of love. Moses, Moses. And Moses' response, here I am. The same response that Abraham has in Genesis 22 when he is called to take and sacrifice his son. It is the same response that Jacob himself will give. It is the same response Samuel will have. It is the same response Isaiah the prophet will have. Here I am. It is a response of faith. But God is the one who initiates this call. God is the one who comes. God is the one who calls. We do not come to God because we want to. We come to God because he calls us and only because he calls us. We love him because he first loved us. Which is why this morning and every morning we begin our worship service with a call to worship from scripture. We, sing, we, we, we sang it in that song. Come, sinners, poor and needy. Come. That is a a call from Scripture. This is the irony. A God whose holiness is dangerous, a God whose holiness is dangerous to sinners, calls sinners to come. This is an incredibly gracious call. Here's the second irony. The, The God who is not safe for sinners, the holy God who is not safe for sinners, saves sinners. The God who is not safe for sinners in his holiness saves sinners. We see this in verses 7 to 10. God tells Moses that he has seen the oppression of his people who are in Egypt. He's heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, he says. 
And he goes on to tell him that he is going to deliver them. So I have come down. And the the last place we read that where God says, I am coming down, is back in the Tower of Babel when God comes down in judgment. And God is going to come down in judgment once again. He is coming down on one level on judgment on the people of Egypt. Which he tells Moses in this text. Because Egypt has oppressed his people, he is going to judge them. And in Exodus, God does. As he is rescuing his people, he is rescuing rescuing them through judgment. Through the judgment of Egypt. But then we read earlier in, in Genesis chapter 15, all of those nations, all of those ites. And we find several of those mentioned again in verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Here we have a picture of fruitfulness and prosperity and overflowing joy. It is a picture of almost Eden. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Back in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is wondering when God's promises will come true to him. And God reveals to him his his plan. He tells him that the people of Israel are going to grow, but they they are going to go down to Egypt, and in there they are going to be sojourners, they're going to be slaves. But that in the 400th year, that after 400 years, four centuries, God is going to rescue and bring his people out. And he's going to bring them back into this land in which they are then going to displace and conquer the nations, the people groups that are living in the land of Canaan at that time. And the reason God tells Abraham, why this delay? Why why not just do it now? Why give a delay of 400 years? Is because the sin of the people of Canaan had not yet reached its full measure. It was not yet complete. That is, the wickedness and the evil of the Canaanites, while it was great, it had not yet reached the point in which God was going to destroy them, was going to destroy was going, to deju- was going to judge them for their wickedness. God, in his holiness, is going to save his people through judgment. The God who is not safe in his holiness saves people. Back in 2018, NASA launched a, a probe called Parker's Probe. Parker's Solar Probe. The aim of the probe is to get closer and closer over a series of years to the sun. They spent years devising it. They spent years constructing it, testing the materials to make sure they could withstand the heat. Their hopes, the great hope that they have, is to get just a tad closer than about 4 million miles. That's about as far as we can get, as close as we can get to the sun with our best technology which we're 93 million miles away. That's, that's pretty good. Four million miles. Closer than that, and that probe will not stand a chance. It will be destroyed. Just as it, the people of God on Mount Sinai, for them to draw closer to God, would, would mean their destruction. 
But here God saves his people. He rescues them. He delivers them. And make no mistake, the people of Israel did not deserve this. They were his people not because they were worth it, not because they were good, not because they were somehow better than all the other nations. They were sinners. And yet God in love had committed himself to them, made them extraordinary promises, made him with them a covenant for all time. The God who is not safe in his holiness for sinners saves sinners. This is the message of the entire Bible. That we are rightfully under the judgment of God, but that this same God saves. And it is this message that Moses is then sent out to carry. Verse 10, come now, after all this, come now, therefore, the Lord says, and I will send you. I will send you. This is missions month. Our missions, our witness, is not merely that God is rich in compassion. Our witness centers on a God who is holy. To declare his holiness and to declare that he will not receive sinners because sinners are not safe in his midst. And yet we declare the good news of God that we who are sinners in Christ Jesus by his death are made God's holy ones. We are made his saints. Because Christ in his death washes sinners who approach him by faith, washes us clean so that we are acceptable to God, received by God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Young man, young woman, You are this day under the judgment of a holy God. A holiness that you and I cannot endure. But though you and I cannot approach this God on our own, He calls us to come. And then through Christ, His Holy One, His death on the cross, we who are not holy become holy in Him. And so by His blood, we approach Him. God commands us to be holy, and then He gives us what He commands. Friend, will you not trust in this God? This is not a message of, if you do this, then God will accept you. This is a message of, look what God has done, whereby you can be accepted. In Jesus, all our hope rests.
In his cross, all our sin is atoned for. Trust in him, friend. Go to him. You will find on his cross a, a, an anchor that cannot be swept away. You will find on him a, a table that nothing, that no weight can cause it to collapse. It is a rock. It is a rock that will stand firm forever. And it is there for holy, less people. You and I do not have what it takes to come to God. But God in Christ gives what he commands. Go to Jesus. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember this is the call to you and I on our mission. That we are to declare with our lips, that we are to let our lives declare it. This is our God. He is holy. He is good. Any view of God that is deprived of a robust view of his holiness is cheap. It is shallow. And it cannot save. Only when we know that God is holy can we appreciate how sinful and dark our sin is. Moses needed to see the holiness of God. I want you to understand, as I mentioned before, Moses had never, in none of the revelation that we are given of Moses' life leading up to this point, does it look like God factors into his life at all. Exodus chapter 3 and 4 is not just a, a record of Moses' being sent out on mission. It is a record of Moses' being rescued by God. It is the moment when God confronts his sinful man and rescues him for himself. The vision of God as holy is fundamental to the gospel. Let us grasp it, let us rejoice in it, and let us declare it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy, perfectly good, I pray, O Lord, that you would cause us to sense the greatness of your holiness, the perfection of your holiness, and not only find it beautiful, but find it terrifying. And yet, in Christ Jesus, to find it good and right. O God, draw near to us, And through your Son, draw us near to you. Open our lips to declare your holiness, your grace. Work in our lives that we would progressively over time display the holiness that you have given us already through your Son, Jesus. It is by him and through him that we pray. Amen.